Hello, I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and welcome to my office. This is Beyond the Prescription, a show where I talk with people who are at the top of their fields about their health, their success, their struggles, and the relationship between all of it. I'm a primary care doctor in DC and a mom of three. In my over 20 years of practice, I've realized that patients are much more than the sum total of their cholesterol and their weight. That health is about much more than the absence of disease. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. Today, we have an amazing guest joining us, my friend, Dr. Emily Oster. Emily is a renowned economist. I love using the word renowned. Best-selling author and professor at Brown University. Emily is one of the leading voices in health economics, and she applies data-driven research to some of society's biggest questions, including why people don't always make rational health decisions. She's also the author of a popular newsletter called Parent Data, where she tackles the pressing issues facing parents today and interprets the meaning behind the latest data about pregnancy, parenting, and COVID-19. Above all, Emily is not afraid to ask and answer the difficult questions on everyone's mind. Emily, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited to be here. One of the reasons I'm so excited to have you here today, Emily, is because you are someone who has paved your own way, who has sort of challenged the traditional kind of narrative, if you will, of how academics behave in the world. And I'm fascinated to hear about where that came from, how you kind of found your voice and like, were there any challenges along the way? So I'd love to hear about the career trajectory, you know, not not that we need to start in the crib, but how you ended up doing what you do, which is really meeting people where they are in in kind of out there in the world and answering a lot of pressing questions du jour, but outside of academia, within the walls of academia. Yeah. So let me back up just a little bit, not to the, to the crib, um, but just particularly for people who don't have a great sense of acad- how academia works. So um, so I have a PhD from Harvard in economics. And uh, and after I finished my PhD, I got, a, I got a job as a professor at the University of Chicago. I got a job at the business school there. So it's now called the Booth School. And the way that academia works uh, is that when you are initially hired into a job out of graduate school, you're what's called an assistant professor, which does not necessarily mean you assist the professors. It's it's just the lowest rank on the totem pole. And then you are on the tenure track. And after some number of years, you are evaluated for tenure. uh, And if you get tenure, if you are voted tenure, uh, then you basically can't be fired. So that's why this is such a big, big deal in this space. So it's a promotion, but it's a promotion to a job where you cannot be terminated. And there's interesting discussions out in the world about the value of tenure. But at any rate, that's the system. The sort of flip side of that is, is at that vote, if you are turned down, then you are out. You cannot just continue to be an assistant professor forever at some period of time, which is typically like, you know, seven or or something between six and nine years, depending on where you are, there's this vote and either you get this magical tenure where you can never be fired or you do not. So I came into the University of Chicago as this assistant professor and I was an assistant professor for for a while. And then I uh, came up for this exciting tenure vote. And, you know, we can 
we can talk more about it. I'm sure we will, but just like in the broad outlines, um, I did not get, uh, I did not get tenure at the University of Chicago. That vote did not go my way, as they say. And then uh, I moved with my husband, who is also an economist who did have the magical tenure, but we uh, we ended up leaving Chicago uh, as a result of that and moving to Brown, where I do have a tenured job and am now a professor. So that's kind of broad outlines. That must have been quite a big moment when you didn't get tenure. You had sort of made your nest Chicago. You had a husband who was tenured at Chicago. Didn't you have your first child? I had a three-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, tell me about what that felt like, how that impacted your family. It felt terrible, I think, for a for a specific reason, which is that it felt very much like it was my fault. Um, and to, to sort of flesh that out a little bit more, uh, at some point during this journey, when I was pregnant with my with my daughter, who is now 11 at the time was three. Uh, but when I got when I was pregnant with her, um, I got very passionate about the experience of being pregnant and in particular about bringing data to the decisions that were being made in pregnancy. And I spent a lot of my pregnancy sort of using the tools from my job in the service of doing things better, better the ways that I wanted to do them during pregnancy. And I ended up writing a book. So I actually sold my first book, which is called Expecting Better. I sold the book when I was like 35 weeks pregnant. Uh, and I wrote it uh, during Penelope's first year. And it's really a sort of like I, I sometimes describe it as a combination of memoir and meta-analysis. It's like sort of a, a kind of personal view of going through the experience of pregnancy as someone who cares about data and wants to understand uh, the evidence behind decisions. But it's also, you know, here's a graph. Here's what the data says on this. Here are all the studies on this. And, you know, here's how someone who's trained in data analysis would would come to these to these questions. And by the way, that book became a bestseller and is it's been wildly successful. And this book you wrote, you're saying while you were at Chicago applying for this tenured position. Yeah. So I was an assistant professor. I wrote this book and uh, and it came out kind of basically right in the middle of this process. So between the time that the sort of group that I was in had told me, you know, okay, we're going to we're going to bring you up for tenure, which typically would be a signal that they were going to vote yes. And sort of between when they told me that and when they actually voted the book came out. And, you know, writing this book was a pretty unusual thing to do. Uh, it, it's not economics is a, what we call a journal field. So the way that you are successful as an academic economist is that you publish papers in academic journals. And in addition, the book is not an academic book. So even putting aside the format, it's not a traditional academic book. It's published with a lay publisher. It doesn't include my own research. It's my sort of analysis, summary, discussion of an existing set of research. It serves a totally different purpose. But I think that it was it was such an unusual thing to, to do particularly in a male-dominated field, but just in general, I think even even if it had been a book about golf or, you know, how to like optimize your, I don't know, fishing experience, like even if it had been that, I think it still would have been quite weird. I think it added a bit of a layer that it was it was sort of in this slightly 
different space. And so I think that that was a part of some of the, I think that that was not unrelated to some of the decision. And I don't want to like overstate that. I don't think that the reason that I didn't get tenure was because I wrote this book. Um, But I also think it was, it was something that many people were uncomfortable with. Sketch that for me a little bit. It was coloring outside the lines of academia. It, It was in the lay press. It was not something that people in your position normally would have written. Yeah, I think exactly. And so I had, I think, quite naively, and there were many naive aspects of this for me, but I think I quite naively thought that people would just think of this as my hobby. And just not, it's not that I thought that I should get tenure because I wrote this book. I want to be clear, like I never thought like this is part of my, what we call it a tenure packet. Like I was never like, this should be a plus. I thought it would be a neutral. Like people have hobbies. Some people hang glide. Some people do. Like I write these books about lady parts. Like everybody's got a different hobby, you know? And so so I kind of thought it would be neutral in that way. And, and, and I think it was not. Um, I think partly because people felt like, look, I don't know, like, what are you what are you doing now? You're like on TV talking about pregnancy and alcohol and pregnancy and all these. And there were some sort of controversial aspects of, of the book, which some people were uncomfortable with. And I think it just it just sort of cast a weird pall over some things and made some people very uncomfortable. And then, of course, you know, other things happened. And, and I think that I was um, a perfectly good tenure case but not a slam dunk tenure case. What do you think it was that made people uncomfortable? Do you think it was that you were on TV, that you were just not following the traditional path? Do you think it was that you were a woman? Do you think do you think people felt threatened? Do you think people felt, no? No, I don't think people felt threatened. I think it was uh, a, a feeling of, I mean, I don't know. I, it's hard to put feelings in, in people's heads. I think the fact that it was a non-traditional thing to do was probably the the central thing. And then there were certainly people whose view was that, you know, as academics, we approach writing in a particular way. So like, for example, the most controversial aspect of this book was this the question of whether having an occasional drink during pregnancy is problematic. And so I went through, you know, in the book, there's a lot of discussion uh, of this. And I go through some studies and, and come to the view that we really don't have robust evidence suggesting that occasional drinking in pregnancy is problematic. Which, by the way, is not the same as saying, ladies, crack open the beers and the wine and go to town when you're pregnant. It's not the same. And the book tries to be sort of very careful about drawing lines around what that means and thinking about, you know, the kind of the world in which heavy drinking, binge drinking, drinking a lot is, is really quite dangerous. And but then sort of drawing a distinction between that and having a glass of wine once a week, which actually does not show up in the data as related to, to negative outcomes. So the book tries to be very careful, but what it's not is an academic book. So it is so even though in producing the book, I did a sort of set of work that would be very consistent with the way an academic would approach this. You know, I read every, you know, 300 papers on this. I did the, the, all this kind of stuff. When you come to like write a book like that, you don't say here are 300 papers on this. It's, you know, here is here are several illustrative papers that can help people understand why it would be hard to the ways in which it would be hard to learn about this, what the best kind of data is that we can use to learn about this. I mean, that is the work of the book. That's the work that I do all the time is trying to translate data for people, help them understand it. And that's where I I mean, and I want to talk about the content of the books and what you're doing now in a, in a bit. And is, because that's ultimately why I feel 
this like kindred spirit with you is because <clears throat> there's there's data and then there's context and data without context is not helpful to people, nor is absolutism. So if I tell every single patient of childbearing age from, you know, whatever childhood to menopause, never to have alcohol, they're going to stop listening to me. And it's not that I condone alcohol overuse abuse. It's that we have to meet people where they are and, and frame the data to give people tools and information they need. So you write this book. It's wildly successful. You're on TV. You're in Chicago. You don't get tenure. And and by the way, you're also like in a lovely way. You're not like playing the victim here. You're not saying like, oh, you know, I should have gotten tenure and it was only this and those awful people. But you're also blindsided a bit, right? I was blindsided. I mean, I was, to you know, I was, I was told you will get tenure and then I did not. Oh, so that is so okay. So there, there's a little victim. I mean, it was it like, and again, like you know, I think that that the sort of flip side of this is people would say, well, look, we learned some things. You know, we got some external letters. They weren't the, what we thought they would be. You know, things happen, and it's absolutely true that things happen. And you know, this just like life goes on. Um, but it was a very, what I will say about it is it was a very poor process. Whether the end result was fair or not fair, or the right decision or you know, I think is is not an interesting question to litigate. What I think is very clear is that the way that this happened was very bad and was very, very difficult for me, like was very hard. I think we're alike in this way. We're both oldest children. We're a wee bit type A, uh, just a tad. No, we're like, a, I think like A minus. A minus. <laughs> Yeah, like I like I said to someone recently, I think I said it on my podcast with Scott Stossel or somebody that I'm a re recovering perfectionist, but it's an ongoing process. But you, you learned, I mean, you worked your ass off from like birth to get to where you are. You've, you've studied, you've like spent hours in the library, you probably declined a lot of dates and beers and fun times to get where you are. And you're used to working hard and things paying off and they didn't. So so talk to me about what that felt like when you had to kind of relocate and reassess it felt terrible and there were a few different pieces that were that were very challenging. So one was that it was very important to me that I not project victimhood, that I not mm. project like you beat me. Yeah. That I and so I remember very distinctly like, you know, this vote this voting on this tenure lasted like two weeks. It was like twice it was like two days a week for two weeks. And it was very complicated. Like I think I lost like 12 pounds over this. It was just like horrible. And then at the end, it was like a Thursday afternoon and the dean called me and he was like, you know, we voted and we voted. No, sorry. It's Jeez. over. And I was like, okay. And I remember telling him like, okay, thanks very much for letting me know. And he was like, you're taking this very well. <gasps> and I was like, well, you know, I mean, I, I have a, a great family and I, you know, I'm sure that everything will be fine. And that, that attitude, which of course inside is definitely not how I felt. I can imagine. I, felt there was a lot of need to kind of project then. So I, I went to work the next day and I went to work all the days after that. And, you know, some people came into my office and said, you know, I want to tell you, I voted no and I want to explain to you why. And I said, okay, you know, thanks. Thanks for letting me know. And I didn't throw anything at them, which I think I should basically get some awards for. Yeah, like an Academy Award acting, right? Like, like, thank you to my internal narrative that is telling me to protect against the hurt and shame for giving me the opportunity to do this Oscar award winning performance. Oh, my gosh, Emily. I mean, there's a price tag for 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 holding it inside. I mean, what was that price tag? Uh, I mean, I think it was of, you know, it was one of the many times in my life that I've very, been very grateful for my 
my partner who is um who is really stable and who in this particular instance like a you know this meant a huge disruption to our lives you know we, i think we had thought we were going to just stay in Chicago and it was going to be great. And all of a sudden, you know, we needed to go find new jobs. And a lot of that, in, in a weird way, a lot of that fell on him in the sense that like, he already had tenure. He was a, he's a more, slightly more senior person. He's, he's like much better economist than me. And so a lot of the things that ultimately worked out for us, the jobs that ultimately worked out really worked out because they wanted him and because they were willing to take me. And I don't, you know, I think ex post, I'm not sure it would, I'm not sure that it would be the same now, but certainly at the time it was like, okay, you know, we get this guy and this is the price. And I think that meant it was a lot on him to, to deal with this um, and to try to, you know, move forward. And he could have said there were opportunities for him to say like, look, let's just like prioritize my career and, you know, we can, you know, we'll like find something for you to do. And he never, it's not just that he never said that he never even like that. That didn't even come up. Oh my gosh. I love him already. He is wonderful. And in the end, you know, we, things kind of worked out and, and, you know, when I, when I look back on this, I, it took me a really long time to get to this, but I think for many years I looked back on this and I thought, boy, choosing to write that book, which, you know, maybe wasn't the only important thing, but certainly played a role. Like choosing to do that was like this huge mistake. And I really like messed up our family for, you know, for nothing. And, uh, and I think now when I look back on it, I think like, boy, that was a really, that was a really pivotal decision in the other direction. Like, where I am now, which I think is so much a better fit for both, like, you know, for me professionally on a billion different dimensions. That was a decision that led to that. And I, it took a long time to, to see it that way. It sounds like one of the ingredients in coming to the to terms with that is, is your own ability to kind of compartmentalize hard feelings, but maybe hopefully process them on the side. Like after 10 years. Yeah. Like, I, like the, out, I process them on the side. On the it's side, like, like a little side, little, little side dish of processing. And I want to talk about that. And also like having a supportive partner network. And I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but also just, just doing it. I mean, how did you come to the place where you are now where you think, oh, that was, that was, that was quote for a reason. Therapy. Isn't that oh. where everybody, you know? I mean, bring it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think some, you know, therapy and, and some reflection. One of the ways I try to help my patients think about engaging in therapy when they're dealing with loss or grief, by the way, I mean, that's what you experience. It's a grief. It's, it's a loss. It's like a death of a dream, right? Um, or whether they're experiencing anxiety or depression. And, you know, I often say to patients, you know, I'm recommending therapy, not because you're crazy, but because you're human is to do kind of exactly what you do in your work, Emily, which is to fact check internal narratives. So, you know, you and I talked about this on a recent little video we did that was fun about feelings that become unbridled because, you know, sometimes our emotional brains take over our rational brains and then we don't think as clearly. We make decisions that are not rooted in actual fact or data. And so, you know, let's say someone has unbridled anxiety or fear about something one of the goals of therapy is to help frame those feelings and put sort of the data and the facts in the driver's seat. For example, if you have anxiety, like social anxiety, like I think, you know, I'm no one likes me, I'm unlovable, like I'm a flawed, bad person, like there's all this shame. Then, you know, one of the goals of therapy, like cognitive behavioral therapy is to to fact check that narrative. Like, 
does no one actually love you? Are you unlovable? Are you a bad person? And usually the answer is no. And then you kind of practice acting in the ways that reflect the true narrative. I mean, is that kind of the stuff you worked on in therapy? Because that's sort of like, that would make sense to me if it was. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of that. And then, um, you know, I think related back to this idea of of sort of the death of a dream or a, the way my life had structured up, up to that point, you know, almost every step that I took from, I don't know, 18 until... Whenever this happened, I was like 33 or something. Almost every step was in the direction of this particular goal. You know, not that like there were there were steps that I'm not sure at the moment I saw them in that direction, but really like there were an enormous number of steps, enormous number of years I had spent trying to achieve this particular, um, you know, this particular thing. And also with a fair amount of my self-worth being kind of wrapped up in achieving that. And it took, a, I think, one of the th- one of the lasting things, I mean, it's still there a bit, like, but one of the lasting things that I've worked a lot on in this kind of, in this sort of fact check kind of world is the, the narrative of, you know, like I failed, like I tried this thing and I, and I failed. And I think sometimes it's good for someone to reflect back and say, Hey, like, actually, I think from the outside, it looks like, you know, you have been reasonably professionally successful. And like, maybe that, that narrative, like, maybe that's like, maybe you're like a little confused about, about that, that narrative. And I think it's just been helpful for someone to, to reflect that. And also to say, like, what is it that you wish were different? Like, what is it you're, you told me you failed. Okay. So what? So what? Like, what would you like, you know, do, do you want that job? And I think that was, for me, that was a very clarifying question. Somebody asked, would you like to be back there? And the answer is like, absolutely not, like under no circumstances. So then it's like, well, okay, but what do you mean then you fail? Like, you failed at this thing. Now you told me you don't want it. What does it mean? Right. It's like, just because you had that sort of vision and it didn't work out, doesn't mean it's a failure, particularly if you just said, that's not where you want to be. So like, hold on a minute, let's reframe this whole conversation, which, which is so interesting. And it makes so much sense then, Emily, why you do now what you do. A, because it's rooted in this kind of cool part of you or or essence of you, which is like thinking outside the box, doing your own thing. And then you actually have lived that where you like have looked at the data like, hey, I'm not a failure. Actually, I'm wildly successful. And and actually, like, def- depending on how you define that, I mean, I look at success and we'll talk about this at the end, like in lots of ways, like success is measured by, yes, best selling books. You know, you just did a thing with Lena Wen. That was awesome. Your Washington Post COVID thing. I think you're a successful person because you're cool and you're funny and you have this dry sense of humor and you'll do an Instagram live with me in the bathroom of your in-laws um, house. Such a nice bathroom, right? Yeah, that pink tile so is pink, really fetching. So pink tiles. Really, it stays with you, the pink tile. I mean, I kind of love that. I, it's like so <laughs> retro. So it's a process, right? It's a process of learning about what that meant for you. You end up at Brown and then you enter this space, which is where I met you working on COVID. Now, COVID is like my friend and foe for the last 26 months as it is for you. And I don't necessarily want to talk about, you know, policies, whether they're right or wrong and litigate all of that. Um, but I would love to talk about how you entered that space and what it meant to be someone again, who is rooted in data, rooted in evidence, has an audience of, of, of parents and people who are, I think, more careful and cautious. And then you became this voice of, hey, wait a minute, you know, that that article you wrote in The Atlantic said schools aren't super spreaders. You've written extensively about how school closures had collateral damage. And that became something that you stood for. And then 
you became the source of a lot of ire. And I have been also the source of a lot of ire. The source of a lot of ire. In fact, there was a tweet this morning with you and me grouped together as these sort of evil protagonists. Um, with with David Leonhardt? Yeah, which I take as nice. a, as a nice. you know, I just it's just it's the game of Twitter. And um, so what's interesting to me is that you kind of put your finger in the, the proverbial electrical socket back in like Chicago without really knowing it. You process it and you learn and then you you do it again. And that's what I love about you because I don't put my finger in the electrical socket for the sake of doing it. I just try to be who I am and it happens to be electrical sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I think it's in some ways it's quite a similar set of events um, in the sense of being a, like a, yeah, a little bit naive. It might be the right way to put it. I mean, the, so the, what happened just like, you know, to back up like 28 months ago. So I started this newsletter, it's called Parent Data in like January of 2020 thinking that it would be a newsletter for people who read my books and I could cover like new information about parenting and and pregnancy and and you know like should my kid have juice a deeper dive into juice and things like that um which I do some of uh but but then of course in in you know the covid occurred and people started you know asking like all of the questions I got were about covid and so I started writing about covid and and started you know and I think the kind of the two really big points there were one in like May of 2020 I wrote a long piece about the decision to like see grandparents or return to to childcare and with a sort of decision frame that I think was actually not very controversial and people found very helpful, but also really grew my audience. Then I started thinking more about these questions of data around childcare and then ultimately around schools. And then sort of in the end, almost doing two things in parallel. One was continuing to write a lot of in the in this newsletter for parents who were thinking about, you know, re-entry and thinking about how to deal with the the risks to their kids and how to deal with decision making and how to think about anxiety and and so on and then simultaneously doing a lot of work on on schools on data collection in schools on trying to understand what we were what we were seeing so they sort of crossed over and and ultimately were were intersecting but somewhat separate and and in both of those arenas but particularly the school arena uh there was just a tremendous amount of ire and a tremendous amount of anger and yeah in a way that I had not anticipated and I not that I I mean I was not as quite as naive uh, as I had, I had been but I I'm not sure that I understood how intense that reaction would be yeah the emotion is is extraordinary and you know I think you and I agree that Twitter is not the real world but to the extent that it does somewhat shape popular opinion and that's where a lot of journalists pull their information and it is the sort of modern town square it it has been shocking to to me and I think to you at how vitriolic the dialogue has been around schools and school reopening and so I wonder what lessons you learned from your past helped you get through that because you know you wrote the schools aren't super spreader article in the Atlantic you also wrote that article about like unvaccinated grandparents yeah yeah, yeah. it's on the tip of your tongue right. obviously yeah. um yeah the, the the article that was basically comparing unvaccinated grandparents no no unvaccinated kids to vaccinated grandparents and equating their their risk yes which 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 immunologically isn't an equivalent. It's just you're trying to kind of frame the risk. It was a frame. It was a frame. And then you kind of had to go into like witness protection program because of all the vitriol. And so like, did your experience 
in your 30s, like, did it help you prepare for that kind of reaction? A little bit. So I think that it helped me with some perspective. Uh, so in particular, one of the things that was quite different is that the the reaction that people had to the stuff that I was doing this year actually didn't have a lot of, you know, it has it had a lot of emotional consequences. It didn't have a lot of professional consequences, whereas the the sort of stuff in Chicago obviously had very significant professional consequences. So so there was a, a little bit of a different um, of a different frame on that. I think what what is true across all of these things is that I um, I wish that I had been more intentional in almost all of these. And I'm not actually not at all sorry that I did any of these things. And I think particularly over the last uh, over the last year. I feel that that piece about the super spreaders and that, and also the piece about the vaccinated grandparents, they were right. I mean, I stand by what I, what I said, I, I could have been more intentional about how I did that. And that's like a little bit of a lesson of the last couple of years, not to, not to not do those things, but just to anticipate how people will, will react, even if it's just to protect my own kind of my own mental health, my own, like, I think that, that expecting, expecting anger makes it easier to take. I think that's true. At the same time, you don't want to kind of water down your message or or certainly change how you present data, because ultimately that's what you were doing. You were presenting facts, but I think you're right. The frame matters. Um, and then, of course, headlines matter. And the headlines are very triggering to people intentionally. And we don't get to choose headlines for that very reason, I think. But it's such an interesting question of how we present data in a complex emotional time where, you know, a virus has been, you know, moralized, politicized, and has created these sort of false dichotomies, like as if you're saying that schools aren't super spreaders means that no one can ever get COVID within the walls of the school. I mean, it's just not that simple. And that's why you write a whole article about it. That's why you spend, you know, hours upon hours and, and months and months and months doing your, you know, COVID data hub around schools. I mean, it's really a communication question and you want to communicate truth and authenticity and curiosity and empathy towards others. And this is what I try to do my job as well um, and present data. And that and that's a threading of the needle that I think in modern times is difficult. And I think you've been the victim of some people assuming things about you and assuming, you know, that your intentions are, you know, evil. And I don't have a solution for that, but I think you're right. You have to protect yourself. Yeah. I mean, I think that when we communicate about data, there, there's two issues, two things that make it hard to talk about data in this space. One is just the the basic kind of data literacy and, you know, what do we know from the data and what kinds of data are better than others? I mean, I spent a huge amount of time early in the pandemic trying to pe help people understand why would it be better if we were randomly testing people rather than only testing people who show up or only testing people who are in colleges or like what, you know, what are the biases there? But then there's this separate piece, which is how do we help people use data to make risk and behavior calculations. And that's been really challenging. And that's the part where I think it comes up against a lot of the stuff that you and I've talked a lot about, which is people's anxiety and fear. And, and I almost, I sort of came at some point to realize the incredible role of salience in the, in this, that, you know, at some point it became for many people, the case that COVID, the sort of the risks of COVID are in the range of other risks you take all the time, you know, risks of the flu, risks of the car, like not for everybody, you know, for people who are more vulnerable,
vulnerable, those risks, you know, remain larger. But for for kind of healthy people, people with young kids, even unvaccinated young kids, these risks are like in the range of the kinds of risks where we are taking, but they are very salient and they are out in your face all the time. And I think that's that's kind of made it very difficult for people to consciously almost move in move those fears into a place where they can make more rational decisions about them. Yeah, I think that's exactly true and well said and is why, for example, my job is is akin to your job. I can give people data all day long. I can tell them, here's the, here, here's the data. Like you have coronary artery disease, your LDL, which is your low density lipoprotein level should by the books be 70 or below. They have an outsized fear of taking a statin, the cholesterol-lowering medication, because their friend had some awful side effect. I try to reassure them about that. But at the end of the day, the data only matters when it's translated through the brain of the person who's trying to understand it and apply it to their lives. Mm -hmm. And so part of my job, which is part of your job and what you do well, is to get inside the head of the reader of the data so that you can understand what their biases are and then what your own biases are too, and, and try to reassure without dismissing their anxiety or fear or preconceived notion of what the data should say. And so one of the challenges that I think you have run up against, and, and I do too, is that when you're trying to reassure someone, which which requires an understanding of the data, you can't just reassure someone just to say you did. Um, you have to have a deep understanding of the data that reassurance is the same as dismissing someone's concerns or lived experience when it's actually not. It's actually honoring that person's concerns and, and paying respect to their perhaps outside fear of the issue at hand, whether it's COVID or in the case of my patient, you know, the statin. So, you know, that's what's so interesting about data is that the the practical applications of it require an understanding of the human condition. And I think You've learned that, and that's why your books are successful. Yeah, that is a lesson I learn very frequently because I am so convinced in so many settings that like, okay, well, if we just had better data or if people could just see the data, then they would come around. And that is something which has been like, you know, even even in this, like the the fall of 2020, when we were collecting all these data about schools, it's like, okay, if we can just like communicate this out, people will see, you know, that actually we're not seeing a lot of cases in schools and these are our safe environments. I think that that what I had not grappled with there was, you know, even putting aside any kind of like, you know, bad actor kind of questions, people were really afraid and actually seeing data was not helping always that alleviate that fear. And that was a, that was kind of a hard one lesson to realize like, okay, actually there's not, I'm not sure that I can make the kind of progress I think that I can on this. At the same time you are, because you're, you continue to to present data, to beat the drum. What we see playing out in the real world vis-a-vis COVID is what you've been talking about the whole time. It's not that kids haven't died from COVID-19. Of course they have. And, and every death of a child is tragic regardless of the cause. It's that relative to other risks people face pre-pandemic, you know, it's, it's akin to the flu, which just saying that out loud might get me canceled. But I'm just saying that nevertheless, you have persisted, Emily. And that's an important quality in a leader to be able to present data, to understand how people read it, um, and to understand the emotional inputs that are out there that matters. Yeah, that's what I try. Try to do it. Let's take a quick break. Tired of wondering where to look for trusted medical information and advice? Subscribe to Dr. Lucy McBride's newsletter and wonder no more. Each week, Dr. McBride delivers real-time information about the latest medical news and guidance on how to manage your physical and mental health in tandem. Subscribe online at www.lucymcbride.com newsletter 
and learn the tools you need to manage your health. Again, that's www.lucymcbride.com slash newsletter to subscribe. Welcome back. Let's get on with the conversation. Ultimately, the data doesn't just speak for itself. You have to have a frame around it. And what people don't necessarily realize is we make decisions every minute of every day. So, you know, as I say to patients, you know, health isn't just about your lab tests with me on your checkup day. It's about the 364 days a year you're out there in the world deciding, you know, is it okay to have a second glass of wine when I'm pregnant? Um, Is it okay to get a booster shot if I've already had COVID? Should I or shouldn't I? Um, Should I eat a piece of chocolate cake? Like how many pieces of chocolate cake is too many? Right. Like, should I get in the car with this person who doesn't seem, you know, sober? Should I, you know, all these different decisions we make and, you know, being human is risky. It's, it's, it's risky. Like it's a, it's a risk proposition. So we can't eliminate risk. We can only manage it. And I think that's, that's the challenge here is that you're trying to get at these nuanced questions and and help people have the tools and information they need to make their own decisions. Um, But when you're trying to communicate nuance, you can get dinged from all sides. Yeah. And also I think that, that sometimes people don't, don't want, (laughs) they don't want nuance. Well, that's also true. Yes. Which is hard. which I think is is hard and it's and it's very difficult when people don't when when ultimately what people want is just to be told like that's here's what you should do that there's like a lot of, of resistance to nuance and I think we've seen that in COVID because I think there's been such a pull for people like people just want to be like just gonna you just didn't tell me when it's over and you're like okay it's both never and also now, right? I mean, at some point I wrote a thing that was like, people are like, when it's over. And I, my answer was like, never and also when you decide, right? I mean, this was sort of in the context of like, everyone is vaccinated, you know? And so, but it really is. It's like, if you're looking for like, when will there be no COVID? The answer is never. But if you're looking for, you know, when can we kind of resume more normal activities? This is more of a preference thing, but that, that's a nuanced, that's a nuanced argument. And people are just like, just like, tell okay, just like, but tell me when it's over, I'm gonna tell me when it's over. And that's a question of knowing your audience. And like, I have, this is an interesting, thing I see with my patients. Some people want the framework within which to make the decision and other people just want to be told what to do. Can I drink when I'm pregnant? And it's easier. I mean, it's really easy for me to say no. I mean, no is like, um, but then it's funny. They'll say, well, can I have just like one? I'm like, well, okay, so let's talk about the data on that. You know, the question isn't can you or can't you? It's what are the risks inherent in having a drink every now and then when you're pregnant? And what are the what are the what are the benefits? And then it's a personal decision. So I'm not here to be a moral authority. I'm here to tell you the data and I will refer you to Emily's book. But yeah, people want to be told what to do. The problem is that, you know, who's an expert? Who knows you better than you know you? And ultimately, these are choices. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's in some ways just part of life and a part of like learning to live with uncertainty and, and realizing that almost all choices we make, we are not going to know whether they're the right the right choice. And, and yet we have to make them. Yeah, I think that's a, a key point is that in these uncertain times, we are dealing with like unprecedented crises around the country and around the world. People crave certainty. They want to trust someone. They want to trust a messenger and they want that messenger to be right. And they want that messenger to give them absolutist messaging that is going to then jive with their personal risk tolerance and have the outcome they want. And that is not possible. And so, you know, that's my job in the office every day. And it's much easier to communicate one-on-one with a patient than it is to, 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 to communicate these kind of nuanced things in a larger way. But, uh, but ultimately, it is risky to be human. Uncertainty is part of the human condition, and it's how we manage it. So let's talk about um, 
in the last couple of minutes, how do you manage stress? Like, how do you manage anxiety and how do you manage uncertainty yourself? Because you've obviously done it. Yeah. I mean, I think, so I think there's like many, many answers to that. So, so in terms of, you know, how do we, how do we manage uncertainty? I think, you know, we, uh, in, when we kind of make decisions in our household, we're quite deliberate about how we make the decisions. And so I think there's a, and then I talk about this some in some of my, of my books, but just the idea of kind of confidence coming from knowing that you made the decision in the right way even though you can never know if it was the right decision. And I think for me, that's a big, that's a big piece of managing these uncertain decisions is being able to say, I'm confident that we did the best we could, that we made the decision in the best way we we could. And that's, you know, that's where we land. So I think that's a big part of the uncertainty management in my household. Uh, in terms of how I manage stress, I go running. That's it. I have only one stress management thing. So I hope that I don't get badly injured. Yeah, like do not step on the like pothole or the open man hole and fall down at Emily. If I will be in trouble because I have no other tool. I mean, I have a therapist, but other than that, I just basically have no other tools. Running is a wonderful thing. I used to be a runner. Then I dinged my hip and I had to kind of find other ways to like get that same sort of dopamine hit. Um, okay. So you run. I mean, I see you on your runs, like on Instagram. You're so cute. You're all sweaty and you go in the morning, right? I go in the morning or first thing in the morning when I get up. Oh my yeah. God. I love it. And is that where you just kind of process things? Yep. I just, it's like a, a time, like I process things. It's just, it's like a, like a protected time in which other, like I can, when I more or less can do whatever I can, like I listen to podcasts, I turn them off. It's a, a sort of thing that I try, like where I'm sort of trying to achieve things, but it doesn't matter. Do you know what I'm saying? Like a, a set of things where like, like I'm trying to do a good job of it. I'm trying to like train for something and go faster sometimes and try and try things, but also it's fine if I fail. Um, and that's like a, actually a very healthy thing. I love it. So it's, it's about the process, not just the outcome too. It's not like you're like a marathon runner or are you? Right. I'm trying to do a half marathon. Ooh, yeah. So we'll see. It's nice to have that kind of goal, right? Because then, and yeah. then it kind of it's something to 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 like aim for. I mean, my family is like makes fun of me tremendously because I was like, I'm going to train for this half marathon. I'm like, well, we'll see how it goes. But then, of course, like I can't not like you know, do, like I can't not try to like take it seriously, um, even though I'm trying to. So they're just like they they've just you're like trying just been, out being blase, like oh whatever. Yeah, <laughs> they're just like nobody in my family is buying it at all. Oh my God. That's hilarious. They're on to you. They're on to me. They're on to you. So I always land with the last question. So Emily, if you were to give one piece of kind of mental health advice to someone who's struggling, whether it's with a job or being rejected from some position, or if it's an interpersonal challenge, um, what would it be? What would you tell that person as advice? I mean, other than get touch your therapist about it. (laughs) Yeah. Like done. Go for a run. Get a therapist. Go for a run, you know, talk to your therapist about it. Um, this is going to differ a lot across different people. What helps? I will say, I think for a lot of people trying to be deliberate about what are the choices that you have and what are the options that you are weighing is a very helpful way to frame. Sometimes when there's a hard decision, uh, and here I'm thinking about, you know, say there's a decision to be made. So I think often when there is a hard decision, it just festers and we aren't really ever engaging with the decision. We're just letting it live rent-free in our in our mind at all times. And there's a pitch for just direct, directly engage with the decision. Think about what do I need to do? What's how can I frame this choice? What are the actual options I have? What are the costs and benefits of those? And and take the decision head on rather than just hoping it will sort of resolve itself. Yeah. 
I think that's great advice. Like avoidance is a very common kind of quote unquote coping strategy when we're under stress and just hoping it goes away and hoping that like inertia carries us forward. Um, but yeah, being deliberate and even facing uncomfortable, pleasant, even facing uncomfortable realities. So what does the future hold for you, Emily? What is what's in your docket? I mean, aside from your half marathon, another book. And I, you know, I don't um, I, I don't know. I mean, I've really been uh, I've I've tremendously love writing this newsletter. Um, and as COVID has sort of dialed back, I've been able to return the newsletter a little bit more towards where I originally envisioned it, uh, which is a, a newsletter about parenting and about, about parent data. Uh, and so I'm, I'm hoping to continue that, that shift and continue to, to engage with, uh, with that audience. And I don't know, we'll see. Yeah, it's fun to watch you, Emily, because you've thought in the box and outside the box. You've kind of been a trailblazer and you've paid the price, but you've also reaped the rewards. And I think it's a good lesson for for women, but really for anyone that, you know, follow your nose, follow the data. Be brave. Be brave. And that's what you are. And I'm so happy you joined me and I wish you all the best and happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Thank you for having me. This is wonderful. All right. Bye, Emily. Bye. Does your personal brand or business have a story to tell? Podcasts are a great way to build a genuine connection with your audience. Whether you have an existing podcast or want to start a new one, with K-Global, all you need is the drive to succeed and we'll take care of the rest. Let's get to work. www.kglobal.com slash podcast. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, download, and share the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you catch your podcasts. I'd be thrilled if you liked this episode to rate and review it and if you have a comment or question, please drop us a line at podcast at lucymcbride.com. The views expressed on the show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice for individuals. Such advice must be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at K-Global Studios in Washington, D.C. Our music is by my cool as a cucumber brother, Walter Martin. On our way out, please enjoy his song, All of Us. I'm your host, Lucy McBride, and until next time... Be well.